Good morning. Uh, Please turn in your Bibles with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible, this is on page 1370, uh, page 1370. Uh, It's been a little while since we've been in this book, so as a refresher, uh, in this letter, which Paul writes toward the end of his life, uh, the apostle writes to his protege Titus, uh, reminding him of all of the essentials of this infant church on the island of Crete. He's already explained the need for and the role of the elders in the church, especially in defending the faith against the false teachers that are here on the island. And now he turns his attention to the need for the true church to act like the true church of redeemed Christians. So now let us turn our attention to God's word. I'm going to begin in the last verse of chapter 1, chapter 1, verse uh, 16. Listen and hear the word of the Lord. They profess to know God... But they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything, They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And thus we'll end the reading of God's word. When I was a boy, I was involved uh, in the Boy Scouts of America. And while I'm not very old, uh, I am old enough that it wasn't yet uh, mired in controversy like it is nowadays. And I remember uh, in my last year as a Cub Scout being trained, uh, we're supposed to learn all of these facets of what it means to be a Boy Scout. You have to learn a new Boy Scout law, a Boy Scout oath, the Boy Scout motto, uh, and all of these things. And my, my dad was our Cub Scout leader, uh, and he spent, I remember, of about 45 minutes drilling into our heads what the Scout law was. And so I remember it to this day. And, and any time we gathered for a meeting as Boy Scouts, uh, any time somebody even said the, the sort of trigger words, if you will, a Scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. And we knew as soon as somebody started those first three words, you could finish the other 12 because that had been drilled into us uh, like nobody's business, right? 
If you were uh, disrespectful uh, to somebody, then you were reminded that a, a scout is kind, he is courteous, he is uh, obedient and cheerful. If you uh, neglected to take a shower at summer camp, you were reminded that a scout is clean, right? Uh, so uh, all of these things, though, were, were some sort of easy uh, recall, right? Some easy way etched into our memory to remember who we are and how we're supposed to behave. And as soon as you don the uniform, you're reminded uh, of the character of a scout. Well, at times... As Christians, we, we may find it difficult to, to, we don't don a uniform as Christians. Uh, we go out and about our daily business. Uh, we, don't, we don't start our, uh, at least in this church, we don't start our uh, worship services with some sort of holding up our Bible and, and giving a creed uh, or a law. But we're reminded uh, daily of this need uh, to be who we're called to be as Christians. And, and while we don't have an easy list of things to list off and be reminded a Christian is, uh, on, so on and so forth, we do have places in the Bible that mark off for us how our character should be changed. And when we find circumstances where we need to behave in a certain way, we're reminded we need to live in this way through the lens of Christ. But this can be very hard. And so in this chapter, Paul lays out... Um, many, many behaviors that we ought to adopt as Christians, but ultimately he gives us one major thing to keep in mind. Keep your eyes on Jesus and you'll know how to behave in this world. And ultimately that is the point that we have today as we read God's word. Christ redeemed you out of the world. So live in light of Christ that he may be revered. Christ redeemed you out of the world, so live in light of Christ that he may be revered. Well, the first point, uh, the first major emphasis that Paul makes in this passage is a reminder that doctrine impacts life, and life impacts doctrine. What we think changes the way that we live, and the way that we live has an impact on what we think. So Paul has transitioned from talking about these false teachers on the Isle of Crete, uh, who, as we read in that final verse of chapter 1, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They have a belief in God, but they don't have a belief in God that obliges them, that obligates them to live in an obedient faith in, in response to God by following his commands and doing what he commands. And so... Uh, we get this condemnation, this, uh, this value judgment of their work by Paul. They are detestable, they're disobedient, they're unfit for any good work because what they say and what they do does not line up. Uh, but then he follows up in this opening verse in chapter 2, but you, a heavy contrast uh, for what Titus is supposed to be doing. He's supposed to align his thoughts and his actions. You teach what accords with sound doctrine. You teach what sort of harmonizes with sound doctrine, with what conforms to it. The Bible uh, is, as it's often been said, the Bible is not a road map for our walk in the Christian life. The Bible does not tell us point A, point B, point C, point D, all the way through. It does not give us answers for every single question uh, in black and white. The Bible is more like a math textbook that teaches you principles uh, and then gives you the knowledge to apply this to the rest of your life. And, and Titus is commanded here to sort of do some of the, the filling in uh, in between, right? To help people understand uh, what goes on between what the Bible teaches and what harmonizes with it. <clears throat> One of the most famous composers in history is Johann Sebastian Bach, 
Uh, and uh, he's, he's renowned uh, for many reasons, but principally because uh, in his day, there were not many composers that did what he did. Uh, many people are very familiar with his cello suite in G major, and if you're not, then you can go home and YouTube that this afternoon and enjoy some beautiful music. Uh, but uh, he's, he's renowned, in, especially in this piece, because uh, many composers would lay out a bass and then add other notes right on top of it for you to hear everything all at once and to understand what a composer is doing. But Bach would play one note and then move to a different note and move to a different note and trust that the listener's ear held those other things in mind. He would trust that you could do the connecting the dots of pairing all of these things. And they're called uh, implied harmonies. Bach didn't tell the listener everything you're supposed to hear. He sort of spelled it out for you and let you connect the dots. And in a way, this is what uh, Titus and Paul are, are teaching the people in Crete to do, right? I'm going to teach you sound doctrine, and from there, we need to be able to connect these dots. We need to imply what harmonizes with sound doctrine. And so Titus is supposed to teach sound doctrine. That word sound is something like healthy or whole or fit or without deficiency, right? Teach what accords with the Bible, uh, but the women then also are supposed to teach good, and they're supposed to train the young women. Uh, Titus is to teach with integrity, with dignity, and with sound speech. So there should be an engagement of teaching what is in God's word, and it has a purpose, right? So that opponents may be put to shame, so that the word of God is not reviled, so to adorn the doctrine of God. That word adorn is almost like... Uh, well, actually, it was often used for setting a, a precious jewel in, in jewelry, right? You can take a diamond, uh, and my, my wife's wedding ring has a diamond in it, and it's a, a beautiful diamond set in a band, right? If I were to take that same diamond out of there, it's still a beautiful diamond, uh, but if I were to hot glue that to a piece of twine and then put it around the finger, uh, nobody would really look at that twice and think that's uh, maybe an ideal example of what a wedding band is supposed to be. The diamond has not changed, but the thing that it's set in becomes increasingly less valuable. Right? And this is the idea that's being put forth here, right? that when we live our lives in harmony with, in accord with sound doctrine, it's like taking the diamond of God's word, the diamond of the teachings of the Lord, and putting them in an appropriate setting, right? placing them where they belong so that it becomes attractive and not like that twine wedding ring. Our gospel lives are supposed to be showed off, and so we have to make them uh, appeal in some way. And this is what Titus is doing, uh, what Paul is doing as we work through this book. He's taking the teachings of the Bible and lining them up with how we ought to live, right? And the, the gospel has to shape the way that you live, because the way you live shapes what others believe about God, other people read the Bible through your life if they don't read it for themselves. And so in order to be an accurate reflection of God, you have to actually find out what he looks like. Uh, we heard last week from Pastor McCollum a reminder of what Moses, uh, Moses' face did when he was atop the mountain and learning instruction from God. And this is in your outline. Uh, you have it, Exodus thirty-four twenty-nine. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. Well, you and I also have 
the word of the Lord. And when we open up our Bibles and we're engaged daily with the Lord, our lives are shaped in such a way that our lives become radiant. And people begin to wonder where this radiance comes from when it's in accord with what God teaches. Right? So we have to be daily before God and before his word and open up our lives to be transformed by it. And when other people see our lives, they'll then wonder where this radiance comes from. And they begin to learn about God and about his word through your life. And so ultimately, doctrine impacts life, impacts doctrine. But Paul does make it clear that this will only happen if we don't look like the world. If we actually stick out uh, separate from the things that are going on around us. And so that's Paul's second emphasis in these verses here. Uh, Do not be controlled by worldly passions, but control yourself in the spirit. Well, Paul gives us a whole list of attributes and of behaviors that different people in the church ought to be engaged in. And reading this list, most of it seems to us fairly straightforward. Uh, but actually, it's very important to understand what it is that he's commanding, uh, and that's just as important as what it is that he's forbidding throughout this passage. Uh, we see a couple of places him uh, forbidding people from activity. He, for, he forbids the slaves from engaging in petty theft. Uh, he, enga- he forbids them from engaging in contradicting their masters. He forbids the older women from being slanderers, from being slaves to much wine. And we read through that list and we say, well, sure, that, that makes plenty of sense. Obviously, I should not be a thief. Obviously, I should not be a slave to much wine. Uh, these things jump out at us as pretty self-explanatory. We say, of course, to those few things, but there are other things that seem less obviously errors. And we're reminded of Paul's words in Romans 6, also in your outline, 16 through 18. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And the fact is, where we're coming from, every one of us is a slave to sin. Like these older women in the church uh, had the temptation to be slaves to wine, right? We can look at that and say, I'm glad I'm not one of those. But in fact, every one of us comes from a place of being enslaved to sin, but perhaps not drunkenness, but some way we are enslaved to sin. And it's, it's easy to see because sin is an easy master. It does not require much of us. Sin does not require us to deny ourselves, at least in a way that is ultimately uh, difficult. It does not require us to obey something contrary to what we want. But sin is an easy master, but a terrible master. But we're so inclined to it. Our hearts are so inclined towards sin. It's almost like sin has us held captive and we're developing Stockholm Syndrome, right? We begin to to enjoy sin in a way that we ought not to. We begin begin to empathize with those things that are causing us to sin. Uh, In fact, the the very first people who uh, were identified with Stockholm Syndrome actually paid for the legal fees for for their uh, captors who held them hostage. And And at times we begin to defend those things that cause us to sin. We too want to to cover up for and we want to engage with and we want to just hold on to this relationship with sin. And Paul says, enough is enough. Righteousness 
Obedience is a beautiful master and a kind master, but a difficult master. The Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us what it is to grow in righteousness. Uh, In question and answer 35, what is sanctification? Well, sanctification is a work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. And I think there's a very important thing in the, in the ending of that answer. Right? We are enabled more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness. Uh, it's not that you should die to sin and then go and sit on your couch so that you don't engage in anything terrible anymore. But you have to actually live to righteousness. And this happens incrementally, right? More and more we are to die to sin and live to righteousness. Uh, in one of the greatest movies of all time, uh, The Princess Bride, right? Wesley uh, is revived from being only mostly dead. Uh, so it's maybe not a perfect analogy for us. But, uh, but he is taken from being mostly dead and slowly is able to gain back his strength and to take on life again. It begins with uh, a head nod. It begins with his head lolling from one side to the other, and then, oh, you blinked, uh, right? And eventually he's able to, to stand up, to hold a sword, and, and uh, to continue on with his life. But this very, very slow, incremental process is what it's like for those of us who were dead in our trespasses and sin to come to life in Christ, to come alive in righteousness. It's a slow putting to death of these things, and it's why uh, Paul is listing off some things that may seem very obvious to us. But how do we do this? Ultimately, uh, Paul is explaining that this is a constant denial of the old self. There's one theme that runs through for every single group of people here. Look with me at verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in the faith and love and in steadfastness. Later on, uh, the older women are to train their young women, uh, they are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled. The younger men have one and one instruction only, be self-controlled. And perhaps that is something that rings true for us today. And the slaves, it may jump out at us that they don't have this. It would seem ironic to tell a slave to be self-controlled when a slave is already controlled by someone else, but they are commanded to control their urges, right? Not to steal, to pilfer, as the ESV says, not to uh, speak back, not to contradict their master, right? Nobody gets a buy on self-control. Every one of us has to be daily engaging with putting off our slavery to sin and taking on the slavery to righteousness, being able to control ourselves, At Seven Oaks, we have a a definition for self-government that I I really like, and I practice it as often as I can. Uh, Self-government is to control yourself so that others don't have to. When I control myself, or when my students control themselves from blurting out, from hitting another student, from... Uh, from whatever it may be, right? I don't have to control them and go place them in the back of the classroom and tell them to stare at a wall for a little while, right? When you engage in self-control, sin does not have mastery over you, right? Sin is not controlling you. And this is why Paul makes this a common thread between all four of these groups of people as well as for 
Titus, right? You yourself, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. That word sound is, again, this idea of sort of sober-mindedness, of self-control, of being not only whole, but also in command of the situation. So it is a command from Paul and from the Lord that every Christian be engaged with overcoming urges that are not in harmony with God's word, that don't accord with sound doctrine. And it's true for your whole life if you're going to be an accurate reflection of God for his glory. That brings us to our third point, uh, which is really Paul's major overarching theme in all of these commands to people. Uh, Live with integrity in the household of God. That you and I are commanded to live with integrity in the household of God. Now, Paul, only once in this whole passage, uses the word for integrity, but it's very clear that this is what he has in mind, particularly when he talks about this idea of being sound in something, right? Being whole without deficiency. It's uh, often uh, the idea of kind of a built wall. If a wall has a hole in it, uh, then it does not have solid integrity. Uh, this, this wall will soon disintegrate, right? The integrity of the structure will be lost and everything will fall apart. And so uh, you and I as Christians need to have the Bible as our integrating force, as the thing that holds us all together, as the glue that holds our whole life together. But more importantly, uh, Paul shows us what integrity looks like in these verses. And we need to be careful not to see these as rules for different classes of people within the church, but more like encouragements uh, in places that people really need encouragement in this infant church. Well, first of all, the older men right, are called to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So they're supposed to have a mind that is clear, that is wise, They're supposed to have a character that is noble and kingly. They're supposed to have actions that are self-controlled, right? All of the person of older men in the church is to be called to obedience to God and to Christ. They are sound in the faith, in love, and in steadfastness. This word sound is supposed to describe all three of these things. And I really like one commentator, I put this in your outline as well, defined this steadfastness Uh, as a quality of character that does not allow one to surrender. Uh, One other commentator even says that this is like uh, being engaged in the fight even when you're under attack the whole time, an unwillingness to surrender in something. Uh, In one essence, you could say that he's calling these older men to be sound in faith, love, and an active hope, a hope that actually does something. And he's not telling them to be sound in the faith. Right? He's already supposed to teach what accords with sound doctrine and teach sound doctrine, but sound in faith and in love. Right? Faith and hope and love are all supposed to be actions that flow out of us as believers, not just some sort of state of mind, but things that we need to be engaged with. And he's specifically saying this to the older men in the church. And we may think, Those of you who are older in the faith may need these encouragements to remain steadfast, not to surrender as you go about your daily life, that perhaps you are uh, getting on in years and you've been fighting this Christian fight for a long time and there begins to feel less and less reward. But Paul reminds you to stay sound in faith, sound in love, 
and sound in hope, a hope that drives you forward. But we also have to remember that, that this, while it is written to older men here, this church in Crete is still very young. This is the whole point of Paul writing this letter. So uh, this steadfastness, this engagement in hope is actually a reminder that even though you may be facing attacks from the world, you may be facing attacks from people calling you to live like everybody else. You may say, I've lived my whole life in this community in this way and my business is going to suffer if I switch my morality or my ideals, my business practices. But Paul is calling you to a steadfastness, whoever you may be, a steadfastness, a hope that is made alive in what we do in a way Because he is calling these men to engage in faith and hope and love, the sort of cardinal Christian virtues, Paul is is teaching these men to live like kings in the household of God, to lead the household of God in their actions as they go forth. Well, next, Paul turns his attention to the older women. He says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Uh, these, in the Greek, actually, originally, it's very interesting and very clear. He says, teach them self-controlled, right? So these older women must be engaged in self-control. Husband lovers to be and children lovers. Right? And we think, well, why would a wife not be engaged in those things? And we'll return to that in just a moment. This idea that the older women have to be engaged in teaching these things and in bringing them forth for others to know and to understand, uh, that they are to be reverent in their behavior, that idea of reverence in their daily life is actually a word used for priestesses in that day and age. And this, in a day and an age and a culture where women were seldom engaged in public worship, I talked um, to an, an expert in Greek culture uh, this last week from Seven Oaks and asked her, I said, were women engaged in, in worship? Why is this such an interesting word? And she said, for the most part, women in Greek culture were cut off from worship, and you would seldom have a festival where women and men were invited to a temple, and then they were separated from one another. They were split off inside the grounds of the temple. So women had no proper place in worship in Greek culture. And Paul is actually here raising the status of older women in the church. He's saying that you are not done, you are not gone, you are not forgotten by Christ, but you actually have a role, and everywhere that you go, you're supposed to be reverent in your behavior. You're supposed to act like a priestess for God in your daily life. You're supposed to actually take up this challenge, and on top of that, Titus is commanded to teach the older women, and they are commanded to teach the younger women. And you don't teach women in this culture. So not only are they being taught, but they're actually elevated to a status of teacher as well. Paul is telling these people through Titus that you matter to God. So if you're a woman nearing retirement or in retirement, right, this is your job also, right, to live reverently, to live as a priestess of God in your daily life, to make sure that other people are also learning this from you, that you can be engaged in Bible studies, you can be allowing others to be engaged in Bible studies, perhaps watching children for uh, the younger women. But everything you do is worthwhile, not just the the changing the diapers from a long time ago, but checking up on your adult children, uh, checking up on other people, mentoring young ones, right? 
I encourage if you don't, find somebody after church. Find a couple after church who's 20, 30 years younger than you and, and find them and have them over for dinner and talk about what it means uh, to love your husband and love your children. Teach them the same way that Paul is commanding these people and provide an opportunity for the church to grow together in this way that Paul is teaching us to learn from one another because you older women are called to be priestesses in the household of God. In other words, live always in the household of God. He then gives quite a, a seemingly long list to these young women, right? So train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Uh, yeah, reviled. So they're husband lovers and children lovers to be. Uh, this is somewhat subversive in this time, right? Uh, women were not any sort of status symbol. Uh, you got married, likely in an arranged marriage, uh, and then a woman's job in this culture is to birth children who will grow up to be statesmen, who will grow up to be soldiers, who will grow up to be, uh, you name it, uh, some kind of something that will support the family and the state. But a woman's job is, is literally just to have children and, and nothing else in this culture for the most part, unless you were widowed. Right? But, but Paul is actually commanding these women not just sort of to live at home, have children, and be done, uh, but actually to engage in something, right? To love their husband, which would have been perhaps unusual in this culture, to love their children and show them this virtue of real, true Christian love. He's telling them uh, to be a homeworker, uh, we see later on in the list, right? Self-controlled, pure, working at home. And some have taken, this is a very unusual Greek word, uh, this may only show up one other time in the New Testament and very seldom even in secular writings uh, of the time. Uh, but another way that this can be translated is, is really, uh, aside from just working at home, but home workers, and then the next word that is translated uh, in the ESV, kind, this may also be describing this, so literally, home workers good, or working good at home, maybe another way to take this. I know some take this in a direction of uh, slightly more uh, conservative and saying women are only allowed to be at home. Some take a different approach and say, you know, Paul is a woman hater and we should never listen to anything that he says, but it seems that perhaps this is uh, another way to read this, right? Working good in the home. He says in Timothy that the women are often going about from house to house uh, and whiling away their time, doing emptiness. Uh, but here, even the young women in the church are called to be working good in the home. Right? Again, raising the status of these young women and allowing all of us to be reminded of the fact that we should not be engaged in emptiness in our hours at home. This does not mean... Uh, that nobody should be working outside of the home. Uh, we see the Proverbs 31 woman engaged in things that are outside of the home, very much uh, engaged in supporting the family. But the best good that you can do as a young woman, as a mother of children, and as a wife to a husband is to be teaching your children about the Lord and engaged in the Lord's work in your home to see your family working good about you. And young men, likewise, uh, are called to act like members of the household of God. They're to be self-controlled. The slaves are to act like members of the household of God. They, too, are supposed to be uh, submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, showing all good faith. 
And in every one of these, Paul follows up with a reason that the word of God may not be reviled, that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, so that the opponents may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. We need to live in a way that looks like the church of God. Live in a way that looks like God and godliness. In other words, be prophets for God as we go about our daily lives. And so we've seen that the older men need to be kings in the household of God. The older women need to be priestesses in the household of God. The younger men need to be uh, prophets. And the young women and the slaves need to be prophets. Right? We all are called to these things. It's not that some people have some commands and others have others, right? But all of us are called to holiness, and these are specific encouragements to be the prophets, priests, and kings that we were meant to be. As we read in that Westminster Catechism question, that we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. And this is that image that was found in Adam as the prophet, priest, and king, and was tarnished by sin. But it is being renewed in us because of the work of Christ, which brings us to our fourth and final point this morning. Live in light of Christ, that he may be revered. Ultimately, Paul funnels all of this passage, pointing us to the fact that we can be renewed because Christ is the grace of God who has appeared, the very word of God, as we see in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Because the grace of God appeared and brought salvation for all men, because the grace of God was embodied in Christ, the word here is literally epiphanied, the grace of God. It appeared in a real and manifest way on this earth that you and I might be trained to live Not a perfect life as Christ did, but self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, right? He died the death of a guilty man and brought salvation for all kinds of people, for Jew and Greek, for slave or free. And Jesus' life teaches us what it means to live this self-controlled life. We read about Jesus' temptations in the Gospels, and we often think that he was able to overcome Uh, We know that he was able to overcome these specific temptations, and we we sometimes forget about that ending where the devil departed from him, uh, waiting for another opportune time. And it might be easy for us to think, okay, that was one occasion for sin, and maybe there were a couple of other occasions throughout Jesus' ministry, peppered through where the devil came to him and tried these things. But can you imagine a more difficult life than what Jesus led for those years in his ministry? A constant process of self-denial, right? Any moment of teaching God's word would have been an opportunity for pride. Any moment of uh, reviling the Pharisees for their false teachings would have been an opportunity for hatred to fester in Christ's heart. Any time where he got up and and taught people would have been an opportunity for him to establish himself as king right right there, cast out the enemies and destroy them from this earth uh, in a way that was contrary to God's plan. But Christ lived a full life of constant temptation in a self-controlled way, pure and upright and godly as the one true prophet, priest, and king. And we are called to do that in God's household right here and right now in this present age. 
But why should we do that? Aren't we bought and paid for? And everything's checked the box? No, Paul says, you've been redeemed. I remember the first time I learned what the word redeemed meant. I was actually in a music class in second grade, and the, the music teacher was teaching us about uh, the redemption. Uh, I went to a Christian school, so that was actually made sense in the <laughs> curriculum. Uh, but she was teaching us about redemption, and she pulled out a, a coupon. Right? And if you read the fine print on a coupon, it says that there is a cash redemption value on the coupon, typically about one-twentieth of a cent. Meaning if you were to gather 20 of these coupons and send them into the manufacturer and pay whatever people pay for postage nowadays, like 50, 60 cents, uh, it's not what it used to be, uh, but you would be returned one penny if you send in 20 of these. Right? So I suppose you could make a very small fortune by gathering coupons from everybody's mailboxes and sending them in. Uh, but you would do that and you would get a penny if you sent in 20 of them. Or you could take that coupon for a free frozen pizza down to the supermarket and get a frozen pizza. And how much more fulfilling would that be than gathering 20 of these for a penny? But then if you bring that frozen pizza home and you stick it in your freezer and never eat it, what good does it do? It might as well be a piece of paper. And in the same way, Christ has redeemed you. He's taken this piece of paper, this worthless, sinful life that you and I have, that's really emptiness if we're being slaves to sin. And he's redeemed it with God the Father and given you meaning and purpose and made you into something real. And if we're just going to stick that away and not do something with it, what are we even here for? Christ calls you to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age and to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, waiting for our blessed hope. There's that steadfastness again, an unwillingness to surrender, waiting for the appearing, there it is again, the epiphanying of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so Christ epiphanied once and died and brought salvation to all men. And Christ is epiphanying again our blessed hope, having redeemed us. And we need to live in light of Christ in the present age right now, live in between the two comings of Christ and live knowing that his light is shining on our lives from both ends. Bridges says in the pursuit of holiness, as we study more fully the implications of be holy because I am holy, we will see more of our own sinfulness. We will see the wickedness and deceitfulness of our hearts and how far we miss the mark of God's perfect holiness. As this happens, the true Christian will in his heart flee for refuge in Christ. We must live in light of Christ. This is a world that so desperately wants to control our passions, but we have to control ourselves. And this is actually Paul's point for the whole book of Titus. You'll see in your outline, of, I've given you an outline of the book of Titus that uh, gives us kind of a, a clarity for what Paul's focus is for this entire book, every instruction that he gives here. All of it uh, arranged in this ancient Hebrew 
a poetical structure, what's called a chiasm, right? This is the way Paul thinks. Paul is a Hebrew of Hebrews, as he called himself. And if you look at this arrow, the whole arrow of this book is a, is a mirror image that just focuses us, focuses us on the fact that Christ has redeemed us, that we are a redeemed people. You've been given a white robe, so why go play in the mud? We're called to be a mirror for God, so why fog it up? There's something so royally majestic, so prophetically important, and so sacredly righteous that the world needs to see from us. So don't let some pet sin get in the way. Live an integrated life. Let the mirror reflect God. Let the robes shine and let people see who he is. So church, Christ redeemed you out of the world. So live in light of Christ that he may be revered. Let us pray. God, we thank you uh, for letters such as these that, uh, and on the one hand, we can read through and we can see your instructions to us and we can uh, practice behavior modification all day long, but uh, we need to be reminded, Lord, even deeper than this, what a Christian really is. And the fact is we are redeemed and we are yours. So Lord, please use us Shape us to be mirrors of you uh, with integrity, living holy lives in your household, that you may be honored and revered, not just by the people in the church, but by people who watch our lives throughout this week as well. We pray that you'd be with us as we go about our week, as we seek to honor you in all that we do. We pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Now turn with me to Psalm 119e. Near Blue Psalter, Psalm 119e. I want to look in the second and third stanzas here, a reflection of what Paul is teaching. Lead me to walk in your commands. They bring me joy indeed. Incline my heart to seek your law and turn away from greed. Avert my eyes from worthless things. Confirm your word to me that I, your servant, be revived to serve you reverently. And so as we sing this song, may we keep our minds and hearts fixed on putting away worthless things and serving the Lord reverently in our lives. Let's stand and sing.